Lord, we thank you that you give us direction through your word. We also thank you that you give us guidance by your spirit, Lord. And we pray that you would anoint us right now uh, by your spirit to receive your word, to understand what you desire us to understand from this text, God, that we would recognize that this isn't just some historical event, but the things that you did in the early church, you want to do now in the present age, Lord. So give us the faith to trust that you still do these things and you want to do these things through us. God, we know we're hopeless and helpless and living the Christian life apart from your Holy Spirit, God. So help us understand who you are, Spirit, so that we can live the life that you've called us to live. I pray that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So last week, we were in Acts chapter 1, and Jesus re-solidified a promise that he previously made specifically in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, that he would promise the disciples uh, a helper. He promised them that he would send them the Holy Spirit to guide them in all truth. And we begin to see these different functions of the Spirit, which we'll get into throughout the book of Acts. But the primary thing we focused on was the fact that Jesus... Jesus made a promise. He promised he would send them the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would come upon them in power, that the Holy Spirit would give them the power to bear witness of Jesus himself. And as Jesus made that promise in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, we'll see that promise fulfilled. And as this promise that Jesus made, sending the Holy Spirit, is fulfilled, we will see radical transformation in the lives whom the Spirit came upon. He's going to transform Peter, the the early disciples, and also 3,000 more. The title of this teaching is Transformed by the Spirit. Transformed by the Spirit. What God did... Back over 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 2, he still wants to do that now. And his desire is to transform each of us. Truly, the call to every follower of Jesus Christ is to be transformed by the Spirit. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of God is truly transforming us to look like the image of Jesus Christ. That's one of the main functions of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that begin to take place here in Acts chapter 2, if you would with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, Pentecost was one of the seven feasts of the Lord that the Lord himself instituted from the beginning back in Exodus. You see all those feasts laid out generally in uh, in Leviticus chapter 23. But what we're going to see here at Pentecost in this specific scenario is that the Holy Spirit is truly going to redefine and transform the meaning of Pentecost. This is the first of five points. The Spirit transforms tradition. The Spirit transforms tradition. What Pentecost used to mean is going to to, to slightly change for the early church. Now this will really help us if we understand the heart of what this feast was, Pentecost. It's also called Shabbat in the Hebrew, also referred to as the Feast of Weeks. Why the Feast of Weeks? Well, it was approximately seven weeks after Passover, specifically 50 days. That's where we get the Penta from, okay? That's what the word actually means. Pentecost, uh, the, the reason it is named that is because it's 50 days after Passover. Now, historically, it marked the beginning of the wheat harvest and the beginning of the summer. Now, as I mentioned, 
All these feasts were instituted back in Exodus when God called the Israelites out of bondage and slavery from Egypt. It started with Passover. They had the Passover meal, uh, sacrificed the Passover lamb, which marked the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, about 50 days, approximately 50 days after Passover, a significant event happened. What was that event? God called Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai And he gave him the law. He gave him the Ten Commandments. Pentecost, traditionally, and Jews still celebrate it this way, they're celebrating the birth of Judaism. They're celebrating the birth of their religion. Now, all they had before they got direction from God was essentially some things that God said through Genesis and the promise through Abraham. Now that they receive the law, they're actually able to form a religion. This is what God wants from us. This is what he wants us to do. Now, interestingly enough, rabbis still teach this day. That when God spoke the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 19, because he didn't just write them uh, with his finger on the stone, it also says he spoke them. Rabbis still teach that when God spoke the Ten Commandments, he spoke them in all 70 known languages of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that there were only 70 languages in the world, if you're familiar um with some of the, the, the numerical systems that are set up by the Bible, we know that seven is the number of completion. So this number 70 represents the complete number of languages in the world. The significance is that God wasn't just putting the Hebrew people under the law, under the Ten Commandments. He was putting everyone, the entire world, this is my standard, this is what you have to live up to if you don't live up to the standard then there must be a sacrifice now back to acts chapter 2 jesus is going to fulfill pentecost by sending the holy spirit now we talked about the seven feasts of the lord in some more detail uh way back during the fall um some really cool studies some awesome things that we learned in the text but i'll briefly go back over pentecost and the connections that are made from the old testament to the new testament see jesus he fulfilled all of the spring feasts he fulfilled passover on passover he fulfilled the feast of fruit first or a feast of unleavened bread on the feast of unleavened bread he fulfilled the feast of first fruits at the resurrection and now he fulfills the feast of pentecost through the outpouring of his spirit he will come to fill uh fulfill the fall feasts okay which is rosh hashanah uh the day of atonement and the feast of tabernacles we talked about that more thoroughly as i mentioned and teachings in the past so this is the fulfillment of pentecost the sending of the holy spirit where at mount sinai moses received the law as i mentioned it was the birth of judaism Now, here, as God sends the Holy Spirit, it's truly the birth of the church. This is the birth of the church. If you would with me, in Exodus chapter 32, Exodus chapter 32, see what happened after God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and he came down to give them to the people. What were the people doing? They were worshiping a golden calf, okay? So then the Levites volunteered to slaughter the people that were worshiping other idols. And it says in Exodus chapter 32, hold your place in Acts chapter 2, verse 28. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So at the reception of the law, literally 3,000 people were slain. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls were saved at the fulfillment of Pentecost. Why? In Romans chapter 10, sorry, Romans chapter 7, verse 4, it says that we're dead to the law, but alive in Christ. Where the law brings death, Christ brings life. Whereas the Torah, or the five books of Moses, the law, you could say, was the teacher in the Old Testament. Now, who's the teacher? 
the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 14, verse 26, if you want to write it down, John 14, 26 says, six says just that, that God would send his spirit, the teacher, the Holy Spirit is ultimately the teacher. The Holy Spirit teaches through teachers. That's why I'll often pray, Holy Spirit, teach us, because He's ultimately the teacher. If I'm trying to teach apart from the Holy Spirit, you ain't getting nothing out of it. Because He's the teacher. We also see connection back from the Old Testament to the New, and we could talk about this stuff forever, but it's so cool. In Acts chapter 2, verse 3, I'll reread. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Not just tongues, tongues of fire. What's the significance there? Well, it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, when God came upon Mount Sinai to give Moses the Ten Commandments, He came upon Mount Sinai as a fire and even burnt up the top of the mountain. But that's not the only parallel we see with God and fire. God is often described as what? A consuming fire. He appeared to Moses in what? A burning bush. He led the people of Israel by night with what? A pillar of fire. He filled the tabernacle with what? His Shekinah glory, this brightness, this fire, if you will. So when you look at this text and it says there appeared on them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. What this text is teaching us is the the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament came upon the early church. God himself came upon his people. The people were truly baptized with the fire of God. Moving on. Acts chapter 2, verse 15. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Now, when they're saying that, it's an insult. Galileans uh, had somewhat of an accent. They weren't known to be very intelligent and knowing a lot. It'd be like, oh, that southern accent, that guy doesn't know anything. That's the insult here, referring to them as Galileans. This is a shock to them that they're speaking in all these different languages. Uh, Luke goes on to list the languages. Picking it up in verse 8. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. This wasn't the tongues of angels, which we'll get into here in a moment. This was the tongues of men. It was men speaking in foreign languages to foreigners. And what were they speaking? It says the wonderful works of God. It doesn't say they were preaching. It doesn't say they were prophesying. They were praising God. They were actually speaking to God. That's what tongues is. And these people heard them speaking in their known language. Who knows a different language in here other than English? Okay. So I don't know any other language. I know a couple Spanish words. But if I just all of a sudden started praising God in Spanish or Russian or German, and I have no idea what I'm saying, but you go, what? That dude's from Florida. And he's talking in Russian. He's talking in German. He's talking in Spanish. And you hear the tongue, your native tongue, being spoken perfectly, knowing that that individual doesn't know your language. This was the spiritual gift. This was the tongues of men. This is what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church. Now, there's so much about tongues in the Bible. And if you're uh, curious, uh, you should study 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14 specifically, but I'll briefly go through some things that I believe are important for us to know, to understand as we discuss the gift of tongues. 
Now, at the end of Mark chapter 16, when Jesus institutes the Great Commission, he says there are going to be uh, signs that are performed by his believers. He says, hey, you'll be able to get bit by vipers and uh, the poison won't affect you. You'll be able to speak in tongues. Now, some people take that and make it a generality and say that it applies to every individual that follows Christ. I don't recommend playing with a rattlesnake, okay? Don't do that. It might not work for you. He's not saying it's for everyone. He says, no, there's going to be certain people that have these gifts, that have these scenarios happen to them, and that's going to be a mark that I'm working in these people. Not everybody can be bit by a rattlesnake and survive, okay? It could happen to you and you survive. Great. But not everybody would be uninjured from that. Not everybody can speak in tongues. It's simply not true. And Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a diversity of gifts and not all of us have the same gifts. And he actually tells the church, I wish more of you spoke in tongues. But hey, in other words, it's okay that you don't. Not everyone has the gift of tongues. Not everyone has the gift of teaching. Not everyone has the gift of prophecy, evangelism. We have different gifts, so we learn to operate in unity as the body of Christ. If you don't speak in tongues, it doesn't mean you aren't saved, okay? This is something that happened in the early church, and it's still present today, but it's not present with every individual. Now we see, as we discuss tongues, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul tells us there's the tongues of men and there's the tongues of angels. The tongues of angels would be like a a divine language, okay, that you're communicating with God, God. The tongues of men is what we're seeing in the text, being able to communicate basically perfectly in someone's language that you don't actually know. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you want to write it down, verses 2 to 4, Again, it says that speaking in tongues is speaking to God. It's praising God. You're having a conversation with God, but you don't even know what you're saying, okay? And because we don't know what we're saying, and because the gift of tongues only edifies yourself, if you're speaking in a tongue and no one's there to interpret it, basically it'd be like this. Look at the gift that I have, okay? If there's no interpreter, you're only edifying yourself, the Bible says. You're not edifying the body of Christ. And what are the purpose, or what's the purpose of every spiritual gift? To glorify God and edify the body of Christ. We can misuse gifts. We can misuse all the gifts. The it, it, Misusing um, the, the gift of tongues would be using your tongue in an inappropriate setting okay there's appropriate settings and there's inappropriate settings for every single spiritual gift now these 120 disciples they all have this tongue that comes upon them they're speaking all these diverse languages but they didn't have to speak meaning the spirit didn't force them the spirit didn't make them the spirit moved in their hearts and they were compelled they were inspired The Spirit's not a spirit of lack of control. The Spirit is a spirit of self-control. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, it says one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's not like the Spirit came upon them and, and, and they had a choice to make. Anytime the Spirit comes upon us to operate in a gift, whether it's teaching or tongues or prophecy, evangelism, service, you name it, we have a choice in the matter. And it often takes faith to make the choice to... Uh, submit to the working of the Spirit. It would be like this. Uh, we used to do these services at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. It's called Revealed. Uh, and basically, it was, a, it was a setting where spiritual gifts were promoted. And I completely agree with that. I think there is the appropriate setting for that. And um, it's something that I'm praying about doing here at some point. Now, basically, you would have you know a pastor lead this whole service. And he would give people opportunities to, uh, to, to use gifts. He'd call people, hey, do you have a, a, a prophecy, a word for the church? And they would read out of, read out of the Bible something that God put on their heart he would ask hey do you have a a tongue does somebody have a tongue that they want to share now play this out so say you have the gift of tongues and pastor doing this service says hey if someone has a tongue if the lord leads you to speak in that tongue speak in that tongue and the lord knocks on your heart you got a tongue speak in it 
And you're scared. Why? Because you know that there's supposed to be an interpreter, but you don't know if there's an interpreter for your specific tongue in the room. So you're going to make a little fear. Maybe a little, well, what if I speak in this tongue and there's no interpreter? Well, who's telling you to do what? Is the Spirit moving you to speak in that tongue? Or, or do you just want to speak in the tongue to glorify yourself? And often this is what will happen. The Spirit will move. He'll push you. He'll inspire you to speak in that tongue because you have to trust that there's an interpreter in the room. That's going to communicate and interpret for the congregation that beautiful conversation that you had with God. And seriously, I've, I've, I've uh, witnessed this happen on several occasions. Uh, you have someone speak in tongues and the interpreter just speaks this profound thing, puts words together that I could never imagine. You know, it wasn't that person just thinking and putting the words together in their mind. It was truly the Holy Spirit worshiping the Father through them. It's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely amazing. I absolutely believe in it. But it has to happen in the appropriate setting. We also see in the Bible, praying in tongues. See this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as well. Praying in tongues. Well, that makes sense because you're communicating to God. You're praising God. Anyone in here asking for boldness have the gift of tongues that you're aware of. Okay, awesome. Great. Okay, see, some people do, some people don't. All right, point proven. <laughs> so when, when, when we have this uh, opportunity or we have the gift to, to speak in tongues or pray in tongues, obviously there's that corporate setting that it can be done in, but there's also the private setting. And it's this language that you have with God and it's not something that you make up. There was a time, this is about, I was about, Four months saved, just just a baby. Not that I'm not still a baby. I'm a baby, but I was I was more of a baby then. And and I didn't know about tongues. Like I had heard the expression, but I didn't understand this stuff. And I remember one time I was sitting in my room in Calvary House, and I had um, I had two guys in the room, one on top and one to the side, and they're both asleep. And I'm just saying my nightly prayers, and uh, I'm thanking God for everything He's doing. And then all of a sudden, this I just sense the Spirit. Right there with me, spirit came upon me and I felt this desire to speak in this language that I didn't know. Super weird, right? So I I start speaking in tongues and as I'm doing it, honestly, like as I'm getting louder, I sense the spirit anymore. Even more, the spirit was encouraging me to pray in this tongue. And then I got scared. So I'm like, dude, if they wake up and I'm doing this, they're going to think I'm a freak. So, so I, so I stopped, but that was my first experience, uh, praying with tongues. It it, it is absolutely something that can happen. It's not something that uh, you have to do or the spirit will make you do. It's something that he moves you to do. It'd be like this when you're moved to worship and sing certain songs. It's almost like that, man, I really want to praise God, but you're doing it in a language that you don't know. It could be a tongue of man, could be a tongue of angels. Now, back to Acts chapter two, verse 14 we're going to see Peter stand up and give this profound message. Now, to this day, scholars across the world try to study Peter's message to understand practically what was so powerful about it. Why? Because 3,000 people end up getting saved. And this is a very powerful message. We only have part of the message, as the text will show us later, but we got a pretty important part. And this lays out for us an example of a sermon, a sermon that was very significant, a sermon again that was very impactful. But the most significant thing about this sermon is not just the style or how you put the words together or how you use this prophecy and this prophecy. It's the impact. 3,000 people get saved from this one sermon. So let's look at it. Acts chapter 2 verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So look what happens. Peter, he stands up and he speaks. Now, it wasn't long, about 50 days ago specifically, that Peter was denying Jesus to a little girl. Okay, He couldn't speak up 
about Jesus and say that he was a follower of Jesus 50 days ago. Now he's standing up in a public setting. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people there. And he's boldly proclaiming the gospel, saying, in other words, that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. This is not the same Peter. This is truly a transformed man. Second point. The spirit transforms the vessel. The spirit transforms the vessel. When I say vessel, it just means person. We'll talk about that in a second. But this Peter is obviously not the same Peter that was denying Jesus to a little girl. Now he's speaking in power. He's speaking in courage instead of in fear and in weakness. This isn't Simon anymore. But this reminds us of another promise Jesus made previously. Remember the first encounter that Jesus had with Peter is documented in John chapter 1 verse 42. Jesus says to him, you are Simon, son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas. This is who you are. This is who I'm going to make you to be. You're going to be a totally different individual when I'm through with you. But that promise isn't just for Peter. That's for each and every one of us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 It says, if anyone is Christ is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. Uh, All things, uh, old things have passed away. All things have become new. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've truly accepted the Lord as your Lord and Savior, you are not who you used to be. You are not. You are a new person. You're no longer Simon. You're Peter. You're the stone. You're the rock. But sometimes we can believe the lie that we are the old man, that, 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 that I am that old creation. I'm worried about falling back into the same sin that God delivered me from. I don't know if I've actually changed. I don't really believe that I'm a new creation. Those are lies from the pits of hell. If you're Christ, you're new. You are not the old man. Don't believe the lie that you are. You are the new man and becoming newer and newer each and every day. Now, this does not mean that you're perfect as soon as you get saved. Far from it. But you sure as heck aren't who you used to be. The Lord promises, I will make you a new creation. All those things in your past are gone. It's time for a new start. It's time for a fresh start. It's time for a new life because you're a new person you're a new creation. Don't be the, believe the lie from the enemy that you aren't. So I also want to point out something out, a point, uh, something else out here. It says, look what happens. When Peter stands up, and we'll get into the message, we no longer see any indication of people speaking in tongues. Why? Because God is a God of order. There's certain times to operate in certain gifts. And if I'm teaching and you guys are all speaking in tongues, who's going to be able to hear what I'm actually saying? There's a time for specific gifts. Peter stands up, the tongues cease. And the Bible tells us just this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that this is how things are supposed to be done. We'll flip there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The context is tongues and the operation of tongues in the church. Okay, first Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Okay, literally say if unbelievers come in our church and we're all speaking in tongues, they're going to think we're crazy. Okay, he goes on to say, verse 24, but if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in. He is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Paul says, I wish more of you prophesied. Why? Because everyone that can speak your language understands when you're prophesying, foretelling or forthtelling the word of God. That's the definition of prophecy. But when you're speaking in tongues, only people that can interpret your specific tongue, and they might not even be there, understands what you're saying. I would rather you speak the truth of God's word so that people can understand. Because when they understand the word of God and the spirit does that work in their hearts, as you will do here in Acts chapter 2, they'll fall on their faces and worship God. That's exactly what happens. Peter stands up, the tongue cease, he prophesies, he teaches, and people fall on their face, in other words, 
and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The tongues was all part of this. And this was a sign. This was a gift that was used to show these people that spoke other languages that God is doing something. These are Galileans. They shouldn't know these languages, but they knew. And that gave them the opportunity. Wait, wait, we might want to watch what's happening here. We, we might want to listen up because God is doing something here and we want, want to understand it. That was the, the, one of the main points of the tongues coming upon the people so that they would listen up to hear Peter preach. Goes on. Verse 15, reread, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So it's about 9 a.m. People think that they are drunk. If you look back to verse 13, the ones that are mocking say they're full of new wine, but they obviously weren't drunk. Now, we don't know why they said that. Could have been how excited they are standing up praising God in these different languages. But we don't see any indication of a term called being drunk in the spirit. We don't see that in the text. And many people pull that from this text that we got to be drunk in the spirit. If the spirit's upon us, we got to be drunk in the spirit. Remember, the fruit of the spirit is self-control, not drunkenness. Drunkenness is out of control, if you will. I think it's just a poor term to describe what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You have, you have self-control. You can control yourself, but you have typically an overwhelming, inspiring sensation in your heart to do something, whether it's operating in a gift, praising God, uh, you name it. But we don't see drunkenness in the spirit per se. Acts chapter 2, verse 16, get into the sermon. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He's going to describe or quote Joel chapter 2. We'll get there in a second, but I want to point out something else here. See, Peter was able to see his circumstances as a fulfillment of God's word. And the only reason he was able to do this is because of the Holy Spirit. It's point number three. The Spirit brings the word to life. The Spirit brings the word to life. Bible says, if you're a carnal man trying to read a spiritual book, the Bible, you can't understand what it's saying. But when you have the Spirit, the Spirit enlightens the eyes of your understanding. You gain understanding. You see the connections. What Peter is doing is saying, look, this is what's happening in front of me. Click, Holy Spirit. This connects back to something that God said through the prophet Joel hundreds of years ago. Now, this prophecy specifically is being fulfilled, but it's only a partial fulfillment, okay? It's a partial fulfillment. A lot of these events will happen in their fulfillment at the end of time, uh, on the day of the Lord, okay? But it is partially being fulfilled. Uh, God did send out, He poured out His Holy Spirit. It'll even happen on a greater degree later on in the future. Bringing it back to the Spirit brings the Word to life, This is very practical. And when we're operating in the spirit, we'll see circumstances that we find ourselves and lining up with the word of God and the the word of God will come to remembrance. For example, maybe you see uh, two people arguing, friends, family members, and, and you remember Ephesians chapter six, verse 12. Wait, we don't battle against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle that's going on. Something spiritual is happening here. It's not he took this from me or vice versa, whatever the case may be. There's something deeper going on here. There's the enemy at work to divide the household, to divide the friends, to divide the family members. Maybe you're on a diet and you're walking by those donuts and 1 Corinthians 10, 13 comes to mind. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will always give you a way of escape. That's a personal struggle of mine. I'm doing this whole 30 diet. It's a 30 day thing. And, um, it's pretty brutal, but I can't have like anything good, basically. So every time I walk by any of these foods that I'm like, man, I don't even usually want that. But right now I want it so bad because I can't have it. First Corinthians 10, 13 comes to mind. No temptation has overtaken you. Come on, there's a way of escape. Walk through that door, not the other. Don't keep walking by the donuts. And this is so true. And this should happen in our life if we're truly walking in the spirit. Maybe it's something more serious. Maybe. You're a married person or even single and that 
handsome guy walks by or that beautiful girl and you want to take that second glance, but you remember Job 31 verse 1. How Job made a covenant with his eyes that he wouldn't look on another woman or another man, okay? So what happens as we're in the Spirit, we'll begin to see how this book doesn't just apply to these people in the past, it applies to us presently and it literally comes to remembrance and the Word is brought to life in our lives. That's exactly what we see here with Peter. He goes filled with the Spirit. This connects back to what God said. What's happening in front of me is something that God promised long ago. And this text specifically, again, is Joel chapter 2. If you want to write it down, it's verse 28 to 32. Um, you probably see that at the bottom of your Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's recognizing that this is a partial fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Specifically, the emphasis is the Holy Spirit being poured out on the people and some of the effects of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the people. People are going to have uh, prophetic dreams more often. People are going to see visions. There's going to be this amazing thing. Yes, that happened then, but that will also happen in the future. Now, The point of all these things, the visions, the dreams, the prophecy, all these signs and wonders are for a more important purpose. These signs and wonders aren't just so people can say, wow, that's really cool. God is using these signs and wonders to point them to hear the word of God. That's exactly what happened. That's how God set it all up. I'm going to pour out my spirit. They're going to speak in tongues. It's going to catch people's attention. Now they're going to be ready to receive the word of God because they saw a sign. They saw a wonder. They know God's working and now they need to understand how do I respond to the work of God that I'm seeing before my eyes? Peter, on a practical note, he's using current events and tying scripture to them. Again, he's seeing his circumstances fulfilled from things God said in the past. And when you look at sermons specifically, this is a really powerful way to go about it. When we can see In our present age, Scripture being fulfilled, like the rebirth of Israel, like the surrounding nations and their beef with Israel, and everything that's going on in their present day and age, and we can look at Scripture and see, oh my gosh, this Scripture is lining up with what's happening today. It's very impactful, but it's also true. That's exactly what Peter was doing here. Reveals that the Word of God is absolutely significant today because some of these things haven't happened yet but look what he does here he takes the current events the holy spirit coming upon them and look at how this prophecy ends in verse 21 he says and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved look at that okay the coming the spirit coming upon the people the tongues the all the different things that are happening in this specific setting it was to point them to call on the name of the lord literally it says call on the name of yahweh okay he's setting them up to prepare them to hear the gospel and then he goes on to explain the gospel in further detail picking it up in verse 22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, having crucified and have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now look what happens. He ends that prophecy, whoever calls in the name of Yahweh shall be saved. And then he points to Jesus. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, what is he saying? Jesus is Yahweh, okay? Jesus is Yahweh. That's what you guys, when you were talking about calling on the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is Yeshua. It's Jesus. That's what he's trying to get across to him. This prophecy from the Old Testament that you all are so familiar with was fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. But he also says this. He says... Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He points to them. He might not have pointed, but he sure, is, uh, he sure said you. Now, it's very unlikely that all these men had something to do with the death of Jesus practically, okay? Some of these guys could have been there um, during the Feast of Passover and said, yeah, crucify him, crucify him. But that's not precisely what Peter is saying. What he's trying to get us to recognize is that every single individual on the face of this earth has something to do with the death of Jesus. Every single individual. We might not have been Pilate. We might not have been Caiaphas. We might not have been the multitudes yelling crucify him. But each individual on this earth has something to do with the death of Jesus. He says you crucified him. They didn't actually nail the uh, nail the nails in his hands. They didn't put him up there. They didn't whip him. But he still says you had something to do with this. See, we first need to recognize that Jesus died because of us before we'll accept the price that he paid for us. Jesus didn't just die for us. He died because of us. We had a factor to play in that. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. Whether it's one little white lie or murder, we're all deserving of, the Bible says, whether you agree with it or not, the Bible says that we're all deserving of death and eternity in hell. But there's a way out. Romans chapter 5.8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, we sin. This is the wages of sin. But Jesus took that price on himself. He bore the burden that we deserve so that we wouldn't have to pay this price so that we could have eternal life with Christ. He goes on in Acts chapter two, verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Death could not hold Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't born into sin. Because he wasn't born of a man. He was born of a woman. Okay, So he didn't inherit the sin of Adam. He never committed a sin. And the wages of sin is death. Death couldn't hold him because he was completely pure. He was completely perfect. So what was the result of that? The resurrection. He's communicating the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 34. He goes on to explain the resurrection and the identity, the true identity of Christ. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. This is a psalm from David. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying, hey, this prophecy, what David is saying, he's not speaking of himself. He's speaking from, uh, he's speaking about the Messiah. David saw corruption. His body decayed. He's not speaking about his own body. He's speaking about the body of Christ. That's what Peter is trying to make clear. Verse 30. Therefore being a prophet. Communicating something that would come to pass. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. That of the fruit of his body. According to the flesh. He would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor does it, did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we were, we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted on the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heavens, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, so he uses a psalm from David to solidify the resurrection. Hey, David's body saw corruption. He was talking about Jesus. His body never saw corruption. Death could not hold him. His body never decayed. Then he points to the identity of Christ using another psalm, uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, literally in the Hebrew, it says, Yahweh said to Adonai, two names for God. It says, God said to God. Wait a minute. How can God speak to God? Are there two gods? No, there's not two gods. There's one God. It's one God, but there's three persons. It's the Trinity. If you have questions about that, you can talk to me after service. But what he's saying is that Jesus was God. And and what he's really saying is, yes, Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was God and you killed God. You had God crucified. The wages of sin is death. What's the consequence of crucifying God? Now, Peter is is able to put all these Old Testament scriptures together to communicate the gospel. And personally, I believe that we should all at least get to a place. Maybe you're not there yet. Don't be discouraged. But we should all be able at some point to share the gospel strictly from the Old Testament. To not even use the New Testament. New Testament isn't even written at this point. Okay, this is 50 days after Jesus died. Why would it be important to be able to share the Old Testament, to share the gospel through the Old Testament? Who's Peter speaking to? He's speaking to a Jewish audience. You want to bring up the New Testament to a Jewish audience? We don't believe in the New Testament. But you can take the Tanakh, the Old Testament, same book, same wording, the whole deal. And you can share the gospel through the Old Testament. It's so impactful. That's exactly what we see Peter do. But he doesn't just use the Old Testament to share the gospel. He has profound understandings and he's making amazing connections in the word. How is he able to do this? There's two reasons why Peter was able to do this. The first reason was he understood the scriptures. Remember, back in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 45, Jesus revealed the truth of the Old Testament. He enlightened the eyes of the understanding of the disciples. He showed them all the connections of the Old Testament. That's what he was doing for those 40 days while he was walking and talking with them. He was teaching them about the Old Testament and the future fulfillment of it. So now Peter has understanding. But it's not just enough to have understanding. He also had, number two, the power of the Spirit, right? In Acts chapter 1, 8, as we read last week, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come upon them in power and give them the ability to bear witness. This is exactly what's happening here. He has understanding and he has the power of the Holy Spirit. We need both of those things, the understanding and the Holy Spirit to communicate the word on some level as Peter did. Moving on, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many of the, as many as the Lord our God will call. Look what happens at the end of this message. It says, when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. It wasn't just Peter's understanding, okay? Peter wasn't like a trained man, we'll see in Acts chapter 4. He wasn't learned, okay? He wasn't like sitting, uh, he wasn't like a rabbi. He sat under Jesus for three years and he had the power of the Spirit. That's why he's able to communicate this way. But it says they were cut to the heart. It wasn't just his words. It was the Spirit moving in their hearts. This is point number four. These last two are pretty quick. The Spirit brings conviction. The Spirit brings conviction. The Spirit is convicting these people that are hearing the message of Peter. They realize the truth 
nor understanding the truth, but there's also that spiritual thing, the conviction of the heart, the cutting to the heart is happening as well. Well, this was another promise that Jesus gave us back in John chapter 16, verse 8. In John chapter 16, verse 8, he says, hey, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. They're convicted of sin. They recognize they have some responsibility in the death of Jesus. And that's what the Spirit wants to do in each and every one of our lives, among many things. But the Spirit wants to bring conviction into our lives. He wants to cut to our hearts to inspire change and transformation. But we choose how we respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what these people ask. Look what it says in verse 37. Men and brethren, what shall we do? These people are asking Peter and the apostles what they should do about this conviction and this truth that they just heard. They respond with a willingness. A willingness to what? A willingness to change. I don't want to just walk away here feeling convicted and cut to the heart and I don't do anything about it. What do we need to do with this conviction? God did His work. What's my work? How do I respond to this? First of all, Conviction is a crucial sign of salvation, okay? If you're not convicted of sin, that's a problem, okay? You're not convicted of sin, it means one of two things. You're not saved or you're perfect. And there's no one in this room that's perfect, okay? If you don't get cut to the heart through the truth of God's word, empowered by his spirit, that's a problem. We can look at a conviction in a negative sense, like, man, I got to grow on this and I got to grow on this and I got to grow on this. But it's a positive sense. It's a mark of salvation. The Lord loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to allow you to stay that way. And he wants to continue to grow you and continue to convict you. And he uses the conviction again to inspire transformation, to inspire change. But we have a responsibility in it too. We got to respond. Man, there's this thing in my life that I know needs to change. And God, I need help changing it. Maybe I need some accountability to help me change this thing. I want to work this thing out. I don't want to keep getting convicted and quenching and grieving the Spirit. I want to respond to the work of the Spirit. That's our responsibility in the sanctification process. So what's the Lord convicting you of? What's that area that he keeps cutting into that piece of your heart that he keeps trying to hammer home? If you can't think of one thing you need to change, that is a problem, okay? I can think of hundreds of things that I need to change. And I don't let myself get in a place of self-condemnation. I'm never going to be perfect. No, I'm like, wow, God, okay. I didn't even see that before. I didn't even realize that that was just, I need to change. I want to change these things. And as the conviction comes, I try my best. I do my best to make those changes, to respond to the conviction. That's what the people are doing what do we do peter says you need to repent and receive the lord acts chapter 2 verse 40 and with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying be saved from this perverse generation then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about three thousand souls were added to them so it says That there were many other words that Peter communicated. So once again, we only have a portion of the sermon. We don't know how long this was or what else was said. uh, But the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write down these parts. uh, Because these were the important things that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know. Even more significant is the fact that 3,000 people got saved. Why? The message did its job. And why did the message do its job? The truth of the content and the power of the Spirit. Okay? It's the truth of God's word empowered by God's spirit. A good message is one that's true to God's word and empowered by God's spirit. You'll always have impact when there's a message that shares those two things. You get away from God's truth, you got a problem. If you're not empowered by the spirit, you got another problem. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. As we'll see in this verse and the last five verses, the Spirit inspired unity. That's point number five. The Spirit brings unity. The Spirit brings unity. It brought them together. They were already praying together in fellowship and back in Acts chapter 1. But the Spirit brought them to this greater level of Uh, of community and unity, as we'll read later on in these last few verses. 
when you look at this unity and you look at how the early church started, they kept it really simple. And basically, we see in verse 42, we could talk about it for weeks, talk about it briefly, that Luke, inspired by the Spirit, gives us four principles to church's success. Look what it is. Steadfastly, that's consistently, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship and breaking of bread, and in prayers. The apostles' doctrine, what is that? The teaching of God's truth. Now, Jesus didn't teach the apostles every single thing that they were ever going to encounter. That's why he promised them the Holy Spirit and says, now when I leave, when I ascend, the Holy Spirit is going to be your teacher. And we see the disciples through the book of Acts and the epistles, they walk through some scenarios that Jesus never taught them on. So what they have to do, they had to lean on the Spirit to guide them all in all truth as jesus promised and this truth they proclaimed and they spread this is the apostles doctrine the accurate teaching of the word of god we see the breaking of bread this applies to communion and also eating together it's both that's why we have our barbecues that's why we do communion once a month we're trying to follow this outline we see next is the fellowship there was fellowship they were in community they were friends they weren't just like the guy or girl that i see at church on sundays no they were doing life together that's why we have home groups to inspire that community and through that community we see unity we also see perhaps most importantly prayer They're communicating with God. They're doing it as individuals and in a corporate setting. That's why we have corporate prayer. If we continue to put an emphasis on these things, then we can expect the Spirit to continue to unify us. And that's exactly what happens in the text. We'll finish here, verse 43 to 47. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions in good, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Spirit comes upon the people. We see the tongues. We see the message of Peter and the prophecy and the connections that he makes. But the significance is the multiplication and many people getting saved. How does this multiplication happen? It happens by preaching the word again, empowered by the Spirit, preaching the gospel. This is who Jesus was. He was God in the flesh. He is God. Well, he's not in the flesh technically. He's resurrected now. Jesus was God in the flesh. This is what we've done. We've sinned against God. We have some responsibility in putting Jesus, who was God, to death. And what we deserve for doing that is eternity in hell. But Jesus opens the door. He gives us a way out because of what he did on the cross. The cross was an open door. The cross was open arms to invite us into a relationship with him. I'll take your punishment if you just take me. How about that? You just take me and I'll take your punishment. But if we don't take him, then the punishment that he paid, the price for us, it really means nothing to us. There has to be that reception of Jesus Christ in our lives. So as this multiplication happens... We see more and more unity happening, so much so that they're selling all their possessions and putting it in the pot. Now, do I think that we should do that today? Um, not exactly. Okay, absolutely. There's generosity and giving that the Bible teaches. Uh, I believe this specifically was for that time period. Now, I will say this. If the Lord tells you to sell all your possessions and give it to the church, we'll take it. If the Lord says, hey, we're going to sell our house and donate it to the church, we will use it. We will have a, a, that'll be where we do our home groups or something. We will, I promise you, I will make use out of that. But this is what the Spirit was doing then at that time. Hey, hey, we need to be so unified. We got to be so tight knit that we're just sharing all of our resources. We're putting it in a pot and distributing as each one needs. Now, as we see at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit 
comes upon the people and does a radical transforming work. He doesn't just transform Peter or the 120 disciples at this point. He transforms 3,000 people. But the purpose of these transformations was ultimately, yes, to make them more like Jesus, which is ultimately summed up with the word love. The Holy Spirit is trying to make the church be built on the foundation of love. The fruit of the Spirit, first word, love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. We see these words, but all these other words after love are just describing love. God, if you summed them up with one word, it would be love. See, love is the bond of perfection in God. He told us in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples. I love you have for one another. So one of the primary marks of the Holy Spirit working in the life of the church is love. The Holy Spirit's working. There should be love. Yes, love for God and also love for each other. As the Spirit continues to transform the church across the world and our church personally, we should look more and more like love. We see that transforming work done in these people. We see the unity that happens again. Love is the bond of perfection. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you did at Pentecost so long ago. And we believe, God, I believe that you still want to do these things, the same things that you did then, you want to do now. Lord, and I pray that we would open our eyes to see you working, that we would open our ears to hear you speaking to us, helping us make the connections between what's happening in our life and in your word. Lord, and we pray again for a baptism of your spirit that we can live out the lives that you called us to live out, Lord, that we would recognize the significance of your Holy Spirit and the fact that there is no transformation in us apart from your Spirit. Lord, so please continue to do that transforming work in each of us, God, that we can look like your church, the church you are building, the church that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen.